Hello, and welcome to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Welcome to the latest Oxford Institute for Energy Studies podcast. My name is David Ledesma, and I'm Distinguished Research Fellow at the Institute. It's my great pleasure to be joined today, the 27th of November 2023, by Maria Olchak, and she is Research Fellow in Quantification Measurement, Reporting and Verification, QM Barbie, of greenhouse gas emissions uh, here at the Institute to discuss the key messages that came from her paper, The Decarbonisation of Maritime Transport, Navigating Between a Global and an EU Approach, that she authored with Andris Peebaltz, who's Professor of the Florence School of Regulation. And the paper was published by the Institute today, the 27th of November, as I said earlier on, 2023. Maria, welcome to the OIS podcast series. Hello, David. Pleasure to be here. Well, look, why don't we start, if I can, with perhaps a bit of a basic question. Is maritime transport a significant source of greenhouse gas emissions? Maritime transport accounts for almost 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And even though it sounds like not a lot, if uh, this sector was a country, it would rank as the sixth biggest greenhouse gas emitter. So it's definitely significant. And according to the International Maritime Organization, uh, between 2012 and 2018, shipping emissions increased by almost 10% and are now slightly over one gigaton of CO2 equivalent. Moreover, shipping emissions are projected to increase by up to 130% over 2008 levels by 2050. And this significant increase is because of the importance of this sector to the global trade and global economy, as roughly 90% of world's goods are transported by the sea, and ships that enable it need massive amounts of energy, which unsurprisingly uh, comes from fossil fuel sources. What could be surprising, though, is that these emissions are not covered by the Paris Agreement objectives. And this is not because somebody forgot about it. It's just the countries decided that these emissions, because of their international character, will be regulated by the International Maritime Organization. And this is actually the major regulator for this sector. Earlier, I mentioned CO2 equivalent. And just to explain it a little bit better, here I refer to three greenhouse gases. So carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide. And carbon dioxide is by far the biggest source of emissions, and it accounts for roughly 98% of all total greenhouse gas emissions, or 91% if we include also black carbon. And if we also account for the emissions over using global warming potential over 100-year time horizon. But methane, which currently accounts for roughly half percent, is the fastest growing greenhouse gas. Over the the period 2012-2018, it increased by over 150%. And this contribution could be even higher if we use global warming potential over 20-year perspective instead of 100-year perspective, uh, which is more favorable approach towards uh, short-lived greenhouse gases. Uh, And also if we uh, use more real measurements instead of using the estimates. So these emissions are likely to be even higher. Maria, well, look, I think that leads us on to a pretty obvious question, if I may, you know, how could these emissions be reduced, you know, and what are the main challenges in achieving that? So we have two types of measures that could be used. So the first type of measure is rather a low-hanging fruit, because it is around the energy efficiency, 
So here you can think about the measures such as the speed reduction, proper home maintenance, and waste heat recovery. However, the big challenge and something, the, the change that we actually need uh, is to shift from the use of conventional to alternative marine fuels. And this constitutes an enormous challenge. And according to DNV, uh, roughly 93% uh, of the uh, world fleet by gross tonnage currently runs on conventional fuels, such as the marine diesel oil or heavy fuel oil. And the remaining 6% runs mostly on LNG, so liquefied natural gas. And we really need to shift this ratio between conventional and alternative fuels. You think about the fuels such as hydrogen, ammonia, or methanol. And here are four major challenges. So I would say the first one is just the complexity of industry, which is composed of many various segments. It includes different vessels, uh, using different propulsion systems, different sizes and ages. So uh, each uh, segment has its own technological and operational challenges when adopting new low-carbon technologies. The second challenge is the long lifespan of vessels. Ships has, have very long lifespan. It could be up to 30 to 40 years, which means that ships that uh, are in operation right now can be still used in 2050. So retrofitting or replacing existing vessels with newer or more sustainable options takes time. It's very costly. The third challenge is the availability and affordability of alternative fuels and the new infrastructure to deliver these fuels. So think about the biofuels, methanol, liquid hydrogen, ammonia. The supply of these fuels currently is very limited, and this hinders the widespread adoption of these fuels. Also, the infrastructure in the ports is not ready uh, yet. And uh, another challenge related to renewables is that none of them ticks all the boxes in terms of the cost, uh, energy density, and sustainability. Uh, so there is no, let's say, clear, clear winner in this situation. Apart from that, maritime transport will compete for renewables with different sectors, for instance, aviation, which doesn't make the job easier. And last but not least, we have different types of regulatory and policy changes. As I mentioned, we have only one regulator, International Maritime Organization, but there is no agreement between the parties around what type of policies are the most effective in order to bring about the change. So I think those, those are the major challenges that we are facing currently. Okay, Maria, well, look, you know, a big point is that, of course, as of the 1st of January 2024, shipping will be covered under the EU Emissions Trading Scheme, the ETS. So what are the major changes for the shipping companies as a result of this? The emissions trading system is a carbon market covering roughly 40% of the EU total greenhouse gas emissions. And the European Commission proposed as part of the Fit for 55 measures to include maritime transport emissions under the EU ETS, alongside other measures such as the fuel EU maritime regulation. And in around one month, so from 1st of January 2024, the EU ETS will be extended to carbon dioxide emissions from large ships entering the EU ports, regardless of the flag they fly. And from the 1st of January 2026, the ETS will also incorporate two short-lived greenhouse gases for the first time, methane, and nitrous oxide associated with the shipping. What it means in practice is that every year, shipping companies will have to monitor and report their emissions. They do that already as of 2018. And purchase and surrender EU allowances 
for each ton of reported CO2 equivalent emissions. All the emissions will be collected in accordance with the uh, revised monitoring, reporting and verification maritime regulation through the TETIS MRV system uh, that is currently managed by the European Maritime Safety Agency. And when it comes to the point of compliance, uh, it's the shipping company that is defined as the ship owner or any other organization or person uh, that uh, assumed the responsibility for the operation of the ship from the ship owner. But what it means in practice is that companies that are involved in the business, so a ship owner, charterer and operator, will need to develop new contractual clauses to pass on the costs related to the EU allowances and renegotiate existing contracts. And the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that will be emitted by the ships will have commercial implications. Hence, the companies will need to find an agreement on the volume of emissions emitted, who covers the cost, which underscores the need for the real-time verified greenhouse gas emissions data. So, Maria, you know, which emissions exactly will be covered under the EU ETS? This is not an easy question, so I will split the answer into four parts. So the first part is about the type of ships that will be covered. So ETS will cover all large ships. By that, I mean those that have the gross tonnage over 5,000, transporting passengers or cargo, but also large offshore ships over 5,000 gross tonnage as of 2027. Similarly, the offshore ships and general cargo ships below 5,000 gross tonnage, but below 400 gross tonnage, will be covered under the EU MRV regulation as of the 1st of January 2025. Now, when we look at the geographical scope of emissions, so EU ETS will cover 100% of emissions occurring between the two EU ports and when the ships are within the EU ports. But only 50% of emissions from voyages starting outside of the EU so think about the travel from Shanghai to Rotterdam or the ship ending outside the EU, so Rotterdam to Shanghai. So you may wonder why only 50%. And this was the decision to include the potential developments under the International Maritime Organization, which I guess we will be talking about later on. Now you can think about this question from other perspectives. So what type of greenhouse gas emissions will be covered? So as I mentioned, CO2 emissions are already covered under the EU MRV regulation and the companies will need to surrender their allowances for CO2 emissions emitted in 2024. The timeline for non-CO2 greenhouse gases is longer with monitoring obligations starting on the 1st January 2024 and surrender obligations from 1st January 2026. Now we can look at this question also from the supply chain perspective. And ETS will cover tank-to-wake emissions only, which means that it will cover emissions associated with burning or using a fuel once the fuel is in the tank during the laden and ballast voyage. In contrast, the well-to-wake approach, which includes also upstream emissions, will be used under the fuel EU maritime regulation. So, Maria, what are the sticks and carrots for shipping companies under the EU ETS then? There are three types of them financial, reputational, and also related to the port access. So in case the companies uh, fail to comply with the EU ETS provisions, they will need to pay penalty, including a 100 euro fine, which is inflation linked, per ton of CO2 equivalent that is not surrendered. But there is also a reputational risk for penalized companies, 
as their names will be publicly disclosed. On top of that, member states may lay down additional penalties. But if a shipping company fails to comply with surrendering obligations for two or more consecutive reporting periods, each member state is obliged to deny the entry to the ship under the responsibility of a non-compliant company or to detain a ship if the ship flies under the flag of the EU member state. So this is a significant consequence. And then uh, when it comes to carrots, those are the EU ETS auctioning revenues. So just to give you an idea, in 2021, the total EU ETS auctioning revenues were estimated at 31 billion euros. And these revenues uh, are split between the, uh, they they go to member states, roughly 80% of this amount, and the remaining 6 billion or 20% goes to the EU funding programs. So innovation fund and modernization fund. And what the EU lawmakers decided is to earmark at least 20 million of EU ETS allowances from the innovation fund for the maritime sector. So this is a substantial amount of additional money that will come to the sector to decarbonize and to decrease their emissions. Well, Maria, you know, as you said, the international maritime organization, IMO, is the sector's main regulator, which, which of course, adopted a new greenhouse gas strategy earlier this year. So my question is, are the IMO and the EU regulatory frameworks complementary or contradictory? So the initial international maritime greenhouse gas strategy was adopted in 2018. And the strategy set the target to peak the emissions as soon as possible and to reduce the total annual greenhouse gas emissions by at least 50% by 2050 compared to 2008 levels. And this level of ambition was not aligned with the Paris Agreement objectives. Earlier this year, International Maritime Organization adopted a new strategy that set the net zero target that should be achieved by or around 2050 with indicative checkpoints in 2030 and 2040. And this strategy will be achieved by introducing two types of policies. So first type is the short-term technical measures that, for instance, improve the ship design and operation standard, and also mid-term measures that have two components. So the first component is a technical element with a goal-based marine fuel standard. And the second is the economic element. So it will be the levy imposed on the greenhouse gas emissions that are produced by the sector. But we don't have the final decision on the midterm measures yet. So the new measures are expected to be adopted in 2025 and enter into force by around mid-2027. So the level of ambition of the International Maritime Organization strategy is aligned with EUETS. But the problem is that there are, the EUETS is, is different type of measure. So, yeah, there needs to be some sort of adjustment. Therefore, in the EU ETS directive, uh, there is a review clause that mandates the Commission to review the EU ETS directive in case there is a global market-based measure adopted at the international maritime organization level. It could potentially mean is that the EU ETS will be superseded by the international maritime organization's levy on greenhouse gas emissions as of 2027, if it will be uh, adopted. And the flat levy on greenhouse gas emissions is preferred under the International Maritime Organization because it provides some form of compensation for developing countries and also it provides more stability for the industry. Now, what happens if the International Maritime Organization does not adopt such a measure by 2028 or it won't be considered equivalent by the Commission? 
So here the Commission can actually propose to extend the surrender obligations from voyages starting outside the EU that are currently covered only in half of emissions. And this creates significant regulatory uncertainty for the shipping companies and may also increase the, uh, increase the tensions over the international impact of the EU climate uh, policies. So they are not uh, necessarily contradictory, but they are not always complementary as well. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Both the answers. Very nice there, Maria. But, you know, what are the implications, you know, for of that for the shipping industry and the LNG carrier segment? So definitely there is uh, financial uh, implications. So based on the estimates coming from OceanScore, the EU ETS compliance cost will be around 6.5 billion euros, assuming the price of uh, 78 euros per tonne of EU allowance per tonne of CO2. And this would have translated into the average cost of complying with EU ETS by 2024 standards uh, that amounts to about 3.25% uh, of the freight cost, according to Argus. It definitely creates a significant uh, financial exposure for the shipping industry but I think what is even more concerning is actually the ETS price volatility alongside the risk for non-compliance fines. So in theory, the ship owners could seek reimbursement for, uh, by the entity responsible for the fuel purchase or the ship's uh, operation under the EU ETS rules. Yet it is still not clear how it will work in practice. And some ship owners already started uh, or already declared and announced their plans to pass uh, the cost over the, to shipping charterers. And there is even a higher risk for ships emitting methane and nitrous oxide, as these emissions will be multiplied by uh, 28 and uh, 265 respectively. So shipping companies with LNG-fueled vessels in their fleet uh, will need to pay more attention to robust monitoring, reporting and verification of their greenhouse gas emissions and while the LNG has presented itself as the alternative due to the lower CO2 emissions upon combustion, the new EU shipping regulations create a certain disadvantage for the LNG. So we will still need to see how the EU ETS will impact the new ships and the order book. But for the existing fleet, the regulation might actually widen the price differential between vessels using different propulsion systems as the charters are likely to demand more efficient technologies. Now, Maria, we've reached the last question uh, in this podcast. So given that methane emissions from the energy sector, including gas imports into Europe, will be regulated under the recently agreed methane regulation, what do you think it means for the methane emissions mitigation in Europe itself? Uh, as of 2026, methane emissions will be regulated under two different policy instruments in the EU. So the market-based emissions trading system and the recently agreed uh, EU methane regulation. So the, the EU institutions reached agreement on the final version of the regulation on the 14th of November, but we still uh, haven't seen uh, the final version of the regulation. Therefore, here I have more questions than answers. But I will start with uh, what we know. So EU methane regulation will cover emissions associated with the extraction and transportation of fossil fuels, so oil, gas, including pipeline and LNG gas and coal. And both the EU ETS and EU methane regulation, they set out separate rules for the monitoring, reporting and verification of methane emissions. And this situation creates some inconsistencies as to how methane emissions is regulated in the EU and with EU ambitions outlined in the 2020 EU methane strategy. 
So the proposed methane regulation does not directly cover emissions associated with LNG shipping, which are incorporated under the EU ETS. However, the EU ETS covers mostly emissions associated with the combustion of LNG. So here we talk mostly about the methane sleep. But as a result, I think that there is still a little bit of a doubt whether some LNG-related sources are likely to remain unregulated. So think about the emissions arising during the LNG loading and unloading, and also the boil-off gas emissions. If the boil-off gas emissions are not rooted as fuel or not reliquified on board and re-injected into the cargo tanks, as well as we have fugitives and vents arising during the LNG shipping. Unless we assume that they will be covered under the EU methane regulations import requirements. However, you know, the approach of these two policies is different. So the EU regula methane regulation places the focus on the direct em emission measurement and measurement-based uh, emission factors that is aligned with the OGMP 2.0 framework. In contrast, the EU MRV maritime regulation is mostly based on the calculation-based approach and sets default emission factors for the methane sleep calculations. And it doesn't provide any incentives for choosing direct emission measurements instead of emission calculation, which is the major focus of the methane regulation MRV part. So just to conclude, the risk here is that actually methane emissions associated with LNG shipping will be reported under the two different EU MRV regimes, which undermines the EU efforts to provide more transparency on the greenhouse gas intensity of different gas supply chains, and also raising some questions over the uncertainty of methane estimations under the EU ETS, given the system's direct monetary impact. Well, Maria, thank you so much for that. And absolutely fascinating. You know, I've been working in the, the, the LNG and specifically in the shipping sector for about 25, 30 years. And you certainly outlined the challenges that face us today in this sector. So, you know, as always, I've enjoyed our conversation. And just to remind our listeners, uh, it builds upon the messages from the paper, The Decarbonisation of the Maritime Transport, Navigating Between a Global and an EU Approach, that was published by the Institute today, the 27th of November, 2023. So I hope you've all enjoyed listening to this podcast. Thank you and goodbye, everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. You can find other podcasts, as well as our written research, on our website at www.oxfordenergy.org. If you would like more details about our energy transition, gas, oil, electricity or China research programs, then please contact us at information at oxfordenergy.org. Thank you.